0: Today's guest is Michelle Bowens. Michelle is the founder and vision coordinator of the P2P Foundation and works in collaboration with a global group of researchers in the exploration of peer production, governance, and property. There's an amazing collection of content at p2pfoundation.net, and there's a very interesting daily blog, which they put out, blog.p2pfoundation.net, it's also well worth following Michelle's Twitter feed. There's all kinds of interesting things there. This is part two of a previous discussion that Michelle and I had back a ways. It was EP63 on the Jim Rutt Show. You can search EP63 Jim Rutt Show and you'll find it. And we'll, as we were doing then, basing a fair amount of our conversation on the book, Peer to Peer, The Commons Manifesto, written by Michelle and to co-authors, Vassilis Kostakis and Alexis. Maybe you can say their names for me, Michelle. You can say their names better than I can.
1: (laughs) Their Greek names are not always that easy. But uh, I think it's uh, Alex Pazaitis. But I could be wrong.
0: (laughs) Anyway, pretty close. While it's not necessary to hear the previous episode, it would be helpful, or particularly if you find this conversation interesting, go back and hear basically about the first half of the book. Before we jump in, though, I am going to ask Michelle to review two main topics which are critical to understanding what we're going to be talking about, and those two topics are what is peer-to-peer at its simplest level, and then another concept which goes through all of Michelle's work is the idea of the commons, so I would ask Michelle to give us a little review about what he means when he says the commons, so let's start with what is peer-to-peer? Right, well... I
1: think a lot of people in your audience will know that it was used in the technology field uh, about 15, 20 years ago when you know we, we had this uh, new configuration where any computer could talk to any computer without going through a server or any centralized uh, entity. And so what I'm saying is this is also a social relationship. So we have now technologies which allow peers to permissionlessly connect with each other you know, communicate with each other, organize things with each other, and also, uh, you know, actually produce value together and distribute value together. So it's much more than just communication technology. It's a way to, you know, create alternative value circuits that may or may not be market oriented. And so to understand the historical significance, you know, imagine a little village Uh, 10,000 years ago, you know, everybody, everybody's your uncle or your nephew or your your niece. Um, And so if you have any conflict, you basically talk it out, you know, as long as it's inside the village, you you can, um, you know, peacefully arrange uh, any conflict. Uh, But then as we got bigger as humanity, we, you know, we we created big organization and it's just impractical and too expensive to do everything, you know, anybody, everybody talking to everybody. So we basically invented hierarchy. You know, once you have centralized hierarchy, then it's, it's very difficult to do peer to peer because you're competing, you know, with, with armies and other countries. And, and, and so that was really uh, something that I think was very determining in our human history. But I think today we are able, technologically and socially, to create vast projects like you know Linux, the free software operating system, or you know Arduino, open design electronics, uh, and we combine thousands and thousands of people who are not necessarily working in a hierarchical relationship to each other. So you know, to be a bit provocative, I call this a peak hierarchy. Uh, and so the idea that distributed networks can be as strong as centralized entities. You know, it's an an open uh, dynamic, but I think this is uh, very interesting. And then of course, how both try to adapt to each other and and create hybrid uh, configurations. Uh, The second point, the commons, is the idea uh, of shared resources. So basically, you know, you can allocate resources through the gift, Uh, Which is, uh, you know, in complex tribal civilizations, you, you know, one family, one clan, one village gives something uh, and that creates uh, a duty of reciprocity. And that's how you basically create social relationships and keep the peace. Then we got into, you know, wars of conquest and it becomes redistribution. So basically the empire, you know, you get overrun and you get lots of advantages but of course you have to have disobedience uh, and pay tribute uh, and the third one is the market and the fourth one is the commons and this is a totally different logic so anybody can contribute to a shared resource like the linux free software system uh, and everybody can use it and uh, this can be done also in the physical space uh, you know there's a tenfold increase in urban commons in cities so 10 times more in just 10 years' time. But you can do, you know, uh, all kinds of things uh, using that dynamic. And so you have to put it next to the state, which is about redistribution, and next to the market, which is, you know, about equal value exchange. Uh, This is about building things collectively, which have an advantage for all the participants who are contributing. So this is the time of the re-emergence of the commons, because as we... Are overusing uh, resources on the planet. Uh, historically, what has happened after such extractive uh, periods is that humanity uses the commons as a kind of healing mechanism, uh, because pooling and mutualizing resources is absolutely the best way to bring down the human footprint. There's no, no nothing else even beats it uh, closely. Uh, so that's why the commons today are such important. Then you put the two together. You know, peer-to-peer dynamics creating commons together. That's that's the era we're in in, in in my view.
0: Yeah, very good. That was a good crisp discussion of those two key concepts, which we'll come back to lots of times. So let's jump into chapter three of the book and talk about peer-to-peer and the new socio technological frameworks. You say in theory, the internet should provide a capacity for many-to-many communications using all other forms of media, and a capacity for self-organization that is a result of permissionless communication, and a capacity to create, distribute value in new ways, i.e. self-organization could be put to use in the sphere of production. Tell us what you mean by that. What are the benefits? Because those are seemingly all positive attributes, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about maybe some of the negatives that seem to have emerged from this ecosystem.
1: Right. Absolutely. So, you know, there's nothing in the world that is uh, pure good. So it's always, you know, two sides of the coin. So I, I'm very happy to discuss the negative side, but, you know, just as like 10 years ago, people were exaggerating the positive sides. People are now exaggerating the negative sides and they're forgetting all the benefits that we got uh, with it. Right. So it's it's a question of finding the right balance in, within those two polarities. So, um, I don't know if you remember this, but maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, Pekka Himanen wrote a book, The Hacker Ethic. And he was kind of updating that book by Max Weber called The Spirit of Capitalism, uh, you know, which described the emergence of capitalist uh, values, capitalist ethics after the reformation. And, you know, he makes the link between how the religious reformation at the same time uh, meant that, you know, markets became something positive, right? So Pekka Hibbenen uh, describes this uh, emerging field of free software, and he notices a complete change in mentality. And so basically, the two values are passion and freedom. So we now have social technical systems which allow people to join them by choice. So they're open, collaborative systems. And so that freedom creates passion. So the fact that you can actually choose your activity, the ones that you love the most, that that you find the most meaningful, creates at the same time this very huge uh, motivational extra. And, you know, think about to to make it a very simple example, you have Encyclopedia Britannica, which, you know, I used to use an absolutely excellent uh, resource. But then you have the Wikipedia where, you know, 100% of the people there are there because they want to be there, right? Um, and so, no matter how much money you have, how big you are, how expert you are, it's very hard for uh, that kind of entity to compete with this kind of open network. And so, what will happen is that you know, usually, uh, one or more individuals will say, "We want to do this. Like, we need an alternative operating system. Uh, you know, to uh, not having not having to use Microsoft, for example, or." We want direct access to organic food in our neighborhood without, you know, going to the big store and and paying thirty percent more. Whatever the goal is, we you, we now basically have the freedom to broadcast these projects, and then people would adhere to it, and they will do so with a substantial amount of enthusiasm. And so most of the time, these these projects start with passion, but of course you can't eat passion, <laughs> so. The second step is usually uh, how can we make a living uh, and continue doing this because we really like and love to do this, right? Um, so around these open, productive communities, you'll find an entrepreneurial coalition. And I call it sometimes the entrepreneurial coalition because, of course, ideally around the commons, you want a vibrant market system that actually benefits the commoners and also takes good care of the you know the web of life the natural resources that are used in that project so you around this productive uh, community you try to create a generative economy an ethical economy and so that's step two Th- step three is you have to manage the infrastructure uh, and so what you do there is you create neutral associations for benefit associations which enable and empower the collaboration to occur so typically, for example, the Wikimedia Foundation will not order, you know, people to write the articles, but they will have editors that have the power to say no. And that's very important because that defends the integrity of the system. So it's not a command hierarchy, but you still have a control hierarchy. And, you know, the free software and uh, associated uh, technologies, you know, you know, is one sixth of GDP already since 2011. So this is a substantial uh, part already of the U.S. economy and, and the global economy. Now, I want to explain one important dynamic. Once you have a system where some people get paid and others don't get paid, you have a question. Do I want to do things for free and see only a few people benefit from our common work? And so that creates a whole kind of dynamic where these communities are going to try to do things differently to have more equity. And this is sometimes called pre-distribution. So imagine you create a membrane around your productive community. You, you You get market income, maybe you get subsidies or whatever you get from the outside. But internally, you can redistribute the value in a different way. And that's called contributory accounting. And there's hundreds of them, you know, hundreds of examples that I have in my P2P accounting section uh, of my wiki. So you will try to create new types of relationships with the entrepreneurs. Uh, For example, we are big fans of something called reciprocity licensing. And the basic idea here is knowledge is free, knowledge can be shared. But, if you want to use it commercially, you know you have to become a member of the association or you know some kind of reciprocity ag- arrangement uh, which uh, you know is kind of a promise of reciprocity, basically. This is less important in free software because you know everybody can use it it's it's uh, it it requires fairly relatively low capital. But if you want to do you know some project with machines and buildings and and actually produce something, You you may want some protection from purely predatory, uh, you know, companies who just take the open source, but don't reciprocate. Um, So what we're seeing is, you know, first we had the free software and open design communities. Then we had the urban commons coming on in 2008 with a tenfold increase. Uh, And now we see the first premises of distributed manufacturing. And we call it Cosmo Local because everything that's light is global and shared and everything that's heavy is local and and potentially cooperative. Um, So just to give you one example of this, this is called the multi-factory system. It's a coalition of 120 uh, crafts uh, factories in Europe. So these are usually people who do materials. So, you know, converting plastic or working with wood or iron or steel or 3D printing. And they kind of, you know, look for um, cheap um, abandoned factories in the, you know, in the ports of the cities and stuff. But they do this cooperatively. They use open source methods and they have what they call the invisible factory, which is the place where they work together, you know, independent of the, the place where they are working. So they have their own commons, if you like, uh, where they're building this collective experience and knowledge for their whole network. So this is a typical example of what we call cosmolocal production. And you know this is very, very important because we spend three times more transporting stuff than making stuff, right? So if you can produce at a place of need, Uh, On demand using distributed manufacturing, this should have a substantial effect on the human footprint. And if you pool your resources, you know, you you mutualize parts of your uh, provisioning systems, then you get enormous benefits because, you know, we we calculated it uh, in a report called the thermodynamics of peer production and we we looked at uh, agriculture And it was about 80%. So, you know, produce as much food, but with 80% less uh, matter and energy usage.
0: Yeah, that's very important. It's one of my own personal passions is the local agriculture movement. But unfortunately, as it turns out, the economics are still hard to get to work right so long as we don't have a strong carbon tax. Because, you know, all that moving of, Food from California to the East Coast, or even worse, a salmon caught in Alaska sent to China to be processed and then sent back to the United States, gets a free ride by not paying the full cost of the transportation. And my own calculations say if you put an honest carbon tax, say a hundred US dollars or a hundred euros per ton of carbon equivalent, Suddenly, local agriculture can outcompete the industrial agricultural machine. But until then, it's going to be hard, especially in you know, places that are optimized, like the United States, very, very efficient industrial agricultural systems. Hard to outcompete it on price.
1: Absolutely. And maybe I can say something about this, because this is very important. So, you know, we have a value regime. We have decided in the 18th century that wealth is created through extraction. So, you know, you need scarce commodities in order to be able to price them. And that's how you realize the surplus. And so typically anything that's generative or regenerative and anything that creates abundance becomes cheap or free, right? So you, you have a fundamental contradiction in our system where an organic farmer who improves his soil every year will get punished. Because the farmer who destroys the soil every year will get much more subsidized and and all kinds of stuff uh, and so that's fundamental so as we if we don't change to a contributory value regime, the things that we need to change in the world you know are not going to work very well uh, you know unless you're going to willing to be to to extremes and i I was recently looking at the bruderhof communities which i'm quite impressed with i you know it's not the kind of life that i would lead because you you know you have to promise obedience and and pretty much um you know forget about your personal development it's you know it's a religious uh uh system but i don't know if you ever seen them i mean they're you know they they're very productive they're and they have everything they need and so what they've done. What they've done is, you know, some kind of radical mutualization like the monasteries did in the Middle Ages. And, you know, they've grown to 3,000 people. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's worth looking at. Uh, and I don't know if you can confirm this, but I learned that the Yemish, you know, also very collaborative in their community, uh, actually have the most productive agriculture in the U.S. I find it hard to believe, but I've read it in two or three articles. And so it's probably worth looking at whether that's true or not.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The Bruderhoffs, I actually drive right by one of their industrial facilities on the way to visit my daughter. Someday I'm going to have to stop in and visit up in Pennsylvania in the United States. With respect to the Mennonites and Amish, there's a lot to be learned there, but I would also caution you that they are exceedingly industrial in their agricultural processes, heavy users of pesticides and fertilizer. Oh, really? Yeah, they'll use up land and then move on. And so, yes, they are amazingly productive, and their farms are very prosperous. But I would say that they are not at all on board, at least most of them, with regenerative agricultural and permacultural techniques. And so there's a lot to learn there but I would say that they're by no means the perfect model. They're one of the one of the models that I've been studying lately, the Mennonites and also the Israeli kibbutz. You now the Israeli kibbutz is another extremely interesting model uh which I would suggest uh, might actually be more appropriate in many ways than the Mennonites. though so I do advocate the Mennonite style of local collective decision making about technology, right? In the Mennonite world, the communities are organized into something kind of like parishes in regular Protestant or Catholic religion, but they're quite small, 25 to 50 families. And the technological decisions about whether we should adopt a technology or not are made at that level and often after years of debate, and they'll come to different conclusions. People think, oh yeah, the Amish, they all do this, they all do that. No, they don't. They vary at this local level. For instance, some will allow electricity in the barn for the milking machines for the cow and refrigeration, but no electricity in the house. Then some will say no electricity at all. And so I think there's a lot to be learned there, but I would caution that their agricultural practices tend to be more industrial than you would think because they're tightly coupled to the monetary system. But the other thing that's worth learning from them is they have an alternative form of finance. They essentially have collective banking where if you're a Mennonite or Amish and you wanna start a business and many of them get into businesses like furniture building or construction or small factories, they don't go to banks, generally speaking, they will go to their community and they have a form of collective capital with return built into it so they can avoid the exploits from the commercial banking sector and, and whatever interest or implied interest comes back is kept within the community. So I think there's a lot to learn there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Another distinction I'd like to make, you call it the light and the heavy, I think. In our Game B world, one of the distinctions we make, which is very similar and maps almost on to light and heavy, but not quite, is the distinction between rivalrous and non rivalrous. Non rivalrous means things that can be replicated very inexpensively. And that can be digital, like, you know, an MP three file. Obviously costs very little to replicate, but it also can include drugs. You know, many, many drugs now can be manufactured for one penny, one cent per pill, and yet they may still charge You know, $20 a pill. And so things that can be duplicated at a very small fraction of their competitive market equilibrium value really ought to be made in as large a possible volume as people want, should not be constrained by intellectual property, at least to the point where it's usurious, while rivalrous goods like a ham sandwich, either you eat it or I eat it, right? It may not be heavy, but it's rivalrous. And so there's a very different dynamic there. And there's always going to be issues about who gets what. And so I also suggest laying that framework on top of thinking through alternative systems. And we should encourage the widest possible use of non-rivalrous goods, and put our attention to reforming how we think about the cooperative signaling related to the creation and distribution of the rivalrous goods.
1: That's exactly how I started my P2P work uh, 20 years ago with the kind of conclusion that our society treats immaterial goods as if they were scarce. So we basically do everything we can to make cooperation difficult through intellectual property and all kinds of uh, rules. So you know we we're creating artificial scarcity in the immaterial world, in a world of light. You know what what we what we said, and we treat material things as if they were infinite. So we we don't take into account that you know there's only so much copper and so much oil and so much of a resource in the ground. Uh, and so the, you know it's it's the opposite of what we should be doing, right? We we should take into account that we do live in a relatively finite world and that we uh, shouldn't make it difficult for people to solve problems together because that's the issue, that that, uh, the system that we have is creating all these kinds of systemic crises, but then it, it creates really heavy barriers about how to solve them. And, you know, I used to work for BP a long time ago in the early 90s which is at a time that they were buying up all these solar companies and uh, electric cars, and basically destroyed them. You know that was like physically destroyed the electric cars back in the day because they um, they didn't want this to compete, uh, you know, with what they had. Uh, and that's only possible because of cop- because of copyright and intellectual property. You know, if if you had open designs, then other people could have made these uh, electric cars. So we lost, in my view, we lost 30 years because of this.
0: Yep. And it's a, a fundamental problem. And, and whatever comes out on the other side of the crises we're headed to, uh, I certainly hope that people will remember that we should make that which is easily reproducible without being burdensome upon the earth reproducible. And as you implied, you know, to my mind, the number one mission of the human race in the 21st century is to learn to live within the boundaries of what the Earth can continuously produce, and not just for our own good but also for the other species that we share the earth with and so those two things together strike me as you know the first two pillars of creating this new world. Now we talked about the cool things that can be done on the internet, and sure enough, there are a lot of them you know I was involved with building. The internet and the pre-internet, I actually started working at the very first consumer online service back in 1980, <laughs> a company called The Source. In fact, I designed one of the earliest email systems and I designed one of the earliest forum systems. And I was also a product manager for one of the first precursors to what we might call today social media. Wasn't exactly the same, but it was close enough. So Anyway, I've been watching this stuff and participating in it since the very beginning. And I will say, we all thought we were doing the Lord's work, right? We thought that we would be building tools that would make democracy better, that would make everything fairer. Many of the things we just talked about, and indeed those things are happening. And it's as you point out, it's important to focus on the positives too. But unfortunately, and maybe I've been a little late to the day, I've come to realize that there are some serious negatives we have to think about about this emergent internet world. And in fact, I did quite a long podcast yesterday with Daniel Schmachtenberger on sense making on the internet and how the internet as it's evolved, and not by design, I will say there is no conspiracy for this to happen. It's the emergent result of capitalistic signals, essentially. We've ended up with a set of very strong network attractors amongst the quasi-monopoly platforms like Facebook, Google, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. And these things have taken, essentially combined, very sophisticated cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience with machine learning to create a system where we're actually being controlled in ways we do not understand. And I tend not to be a believer in conspiracy theories and wackadoodle shit like that. But I think in this case, it is true that we have developed an emergent world where what should have been these tools of liberation have instead been, I think, what you called cognitive capitalism, where our behaviors, you know, our information and our data are essentially turned back around against us for the purpose of selling us ads. And the ads are sold for the purpose of, you know, turning us into something that we are not. And so while there are gigantic potentials and accomplishments for the internet, I do believe it's now time to turn our attention to the problems with it. In fact, I would like to call out here a great movie that just came out yesterday and I watched it last night. It's called, The Social Dilemma, it's on Netflix, and it is Tristan Harris of Humane Tech, he plays the narrator in it. And it's an incredibly powerful examination of how these platforms are controlling us in ways that we don't understand. I strongly recommend people watch that. And the other, and she appears in the film, is called Surveillance Capitalism by Soshana Zuboff, who focuses mostly on Google, but also a bit on Facebook, and how these tools that should be, you know, core to human emancipation have, you know, again, not through malicious intent, but through these mega companies responding to the signals of capitalism, particularly as they transition to an advertising model, no longer are friends, and in fact, are destroying our ability for collective sense making, and may well be driving our whole society insane.
1: Well, I'm very close to that analysis because, you know, I've been a curator for almost 15 years now. I mean longer because I, you know, I've I've been a librarian since, uh, you know, my first job in 1981. Um, But, you know, as a curator, you know, the simple fact that you want to, you know, be pluralistic in your sources has become extraordinarily difficult. Um, you know, so we had this idea of the filter bubble uh, some years ago, which you know these algorithms kind of tend to present to you what confirms your interests and your opinions. Uh, but now we've come to weaponizing of this, which is that you know as communities are fragmenting, what happens is that they actually don't want any other information. They they actively try to protect themselves. Uh, from anything that disturbs the righteousness or whatever it is that determines their being together in a community, and and that's really really painful. I'm, I've lost a lot of joy, you know, doing this kind of work in the last uh, two years because of this.
0: Yeah, it's a very real thing, and in fact, the film, the social dilemma, focuses on that. You know, we think intuitively that everybody and historically this was sort of true, had more or less similar sources of information. And we could assume that at least people had some agreement about the facts, if not about what should be done about them. But because of these filter bubbles and these algorithms, which select things that outrage us, which press the dopamine buttons in our brains, it's now the fact that people have very different flows of information. I mean, they're not similar at all, right?
1: No, no. But, you know, even if you do a search in, uh, in Google, uh, on, I'll do it on my computer, you'll do it on yours. We, we, even that, we won't find the same things anymore.
0: Yeah, they give a, a very good example on climate change. If you type in climate change, the auto continuations, i.e. the suggested searches you do, are radically different depending on where you live. So if you're in Texas, it'll say you type in climate change and some of the suggested continuations is a hoax, is nothing, et cetera. And if you do it in New York City, it will say is a existential risk to humanity. And it's interesting, nobody at Google made those decisions. These were machine learning based extractions from patterns of what they saw, which, as you say, creates a filter bubble, does not present objective view of reality, but rather reinforces a set of prejudices so that New York and Texas now have radically different views about climate change, even though there's only one set of objective facts, which neither side sees in a pure form
1: right so maybe one thing we we can do and this is you know what i'm trying to do with the p2p foundation so this is called object oriented relationality you know it's one of the branches of uh, maybe sociology i'm not sure but the basic idea is that you know th- what is the commons about it's a shared object that you want to make and so in this case what you're doing is that you're congregating but you're congregating to build something right and you you so you look for commonality And you organize around a commonality, which is the love of that object, be it free software, or it's a bit similar to, you know, I was reading an article in Jacobin magazine today about, you know, how unions back in the day were able to create kind of unity between the workers uh, of different races and, and, uh, you know, other differences, because they were all kind of had this common identity, you know, we workers, we will struggle together. It's good for us if we all fight together around, you know, uh, some common priorities, uh, as opposed to the fragmentation that we that we are, have right now. Um, and you're probably familiar with the work of, uh, is it Peter Lindbergh with, uh, you know, Culture 2.0, this mapping of 30 different mimetic tribes that, uh, you know, all have their own logic, all have their own convictions. And are not seeing and reading any any more the same things. This is um, so I see commoning as a potential also strategy to overcome so, at least some of that fragmentation by focusing on you know this kind of common priority that we could have if we build things together.
0: Yeah, I think that's really what we have to work on, but we have to be realistic about the fact that these monopoly attractors armed with machine learning are not attempting to do that. And we have to find ways to either overcome it. One of the things, for instance, I find Facebook, for instance, for all of its evils, if you stay out of the broad public Facebook and spend your time in private groups, many of the dynamics go away. They don't run very many ads in the private groups. Private groups have their own algorithms, which are objective, actually, and they're not driven by the Zuckerberg algorithm, et cetera. So one can adapt one's usage to not be quite as sucked into these attractors. The other one I'd recommend to everybody, turn the goddamn notifications off on your devices. Don't let them pop at you because they are trying to get your attention. Turn all the notifications off. The other two things I personally do, which I'd recommend, is I take a six month break from social media every year. That's really good. I should do that as well. Yeah. In fact, I'm in, at the end of month two of this year's break from July till the end of December. And it's amazingly liberating. And the other is even when I am on social media, and this has to do with other things too, like email, is once a week I take a day's break and have a cyber sabbath, typically on Sunday, where I don't touch any device at all, except my Kindle. I have like the good Mennonites. I say, well, Kindles are all right. Kindles are like a book, right? And so again, these these are habits that we can get into to free us at least a bit from cognitive capitalism. Let's go on now to a model that you have in the book, which is about how we can use this network infrastructure and other things. And you basically create a two by two, in a good management consultant fashion, centralized versus global and, you know, for-profit versus for-benefit. And you have four different boxes and maybe talk about that a little bit.
1: Right. So, so let's take uh, each quadrant by, you know, at, uh, in turn. And so the ones that we are ju- just discussing is basically the idea of centralized peer-to-peer infrastructures with a for-profit goal. So the Facebooks, the Googles, they still do allow, you know, peer-to-peer connectivity, but everything except the front end is actually centralized, right? It's centralized property, it's centralized governance, they own your data, et cetera, et cetera. And and so we know where that is going, and that's that's not good news. Then the other one um, is distributed, but for profit, And here's what I'm thinking is the Bitcoin world, the blockchain world, the crypto world. Because if you look, for example, at Bitcoin, it's very clearly designed, you know, as a commodity currency to go up in value. Um, So in other words, it is designed to make a profit. Um, And the ideology behind it is a libertarian uh, ideology, which, uh, you know, sees every individual as separate from each other. And then you can engage in market transactions. What they don't see, though, is that any competition for scarce resource creates uh, oligarchy. Um, you know, whether you're competing for land or you're competing for money, it doesn't really matter. In any iterative game uh, for scarce resource, one people, through luck and cleverness and hard work, whatever the reason is, will end up having more resources than the other. And then for the next interactive game you're stronger and you're concentrating resources. And not only that, but actually that's you know they're really designed to do that, right? They have oligarchic protocols like proof of stake and proof of work, which give more to people who already have. So that's that's a group apart, which claims to be peer-to-peer, but actually you know creates oligarchic systems in, in their effects. Uh, and then you have on the other side two for benefit models. And one is the local distributed uh, for benefit models. And that's really what's happening in the urban commons. You know, there were 50 urban commons in the city of Ghent in 2008 and 500 in 2016. Uh, So there is this explosion of local uh, initiatives, you know, faced with state and market failure. People are really mutualizing a lot of, of their provisioning system. And so what we saw in Ghent, for example, was that every provisioning system had already a commons-based alternative. Whether it was a community land trust, uh, housing co-ops and co-living arrangements for housing, whether it is, uh, you know, shared transport, uh, but not Uber, but, you know, uh, associations and co-ops that that do uh, similar things, but way better. Uh, whether it is, uh, you know, shared uh, food like uh, collective purchasing, uh, you know, with farmers for organic food, so the whole field is is filled with those local, bioregional regional, effects, and maybe you know, two three percent of the population is engaged already in these alternatives, and you know, we've seen it with the maker uh, movement uh, during COVID. You know, in the early phases of COVID, the uh, there was you know the hardware wasn't there, you know the ventilators, the masks, everything was missing, and so you saw the extraordinary um, you know mobilization of maker spaces uh, to do this kind of cosmolocal production, and that brings us to the fourth quadrant, which is the global quadrant, and this is about the global open design communities um you know i'm looking forward to the days when we can have planetary guilds uh that protect workers that work on these global systems um so it's uh i look forward to what i call protocol co-ops uh so to give you an example of this you know there's this coalition called c40 uh of uh, cities in the world which want to do climate change and you know and then, for example one of the things they would do is looking at regulations to rein in uh, Uber and Airbnb, right? But that's just a negative regulation. What I want to see is fair BNB and Mooney rights. In other words, multi-stakeholder, you know, mutualized facilities that are you know, managed by the people who produce them and, and, and use them. And so one of the things I've been proposing to the cities that I work for is, okay, you create a global open design, Depository for, let's say, share mobility. You make a deal with a coalition of cities. You know, like in the Middle Ages, the hanseatic League, for example. Uh, you create, you know, ethical finance, impact finance coalition, and you create uh, solidarity economy, cooperative economy, social entrepreneurship. And with all of those things, you can create, you know, based on common protocols. Local adaptation, so that you can neutralize transportation much faster than any other you know way could could achieve, so you see you have those four alternatives: it all depends how you design the cyber physical infrastructure um, and ideally uh, this is kind of my vision of the future. you know I want an integration of the best of the best, so we have In open source and the commons, we learn how to do mutual coordination, right? Stigmergy, the the capacity to see the signals of all the others working on the same project so that you can coordinate and adapt in real time to what others are doing. Market pricing works very well, you know, to allocate really scarce resources. And so we can work on generative markets. And finally, you know, what we call orchestrated planning, which is the role of the state. But we can also imagine global governance institutions that, for example, the Global Thresholds uh, and Allocations Council, which is proposed by R3.0, Reporting 3.0, which is actually holding its conference right now. And the idea here that they propose is to have a council of scientists monitoring the availability of uh resources matter and energy globally and then come to some some type of agreement about you know what is the fair distribution of those uh allocation uh, rights uh and that would then be reflected in accounting systems right so that you everywhere you would know how to use resources without going over the planet boundary so it's kind of like uh, the donut economy idea of kate wayworth but integrated in in one accounting system. And this is why, despite my critiques, I still am very interested in the blockchain world because what they're doing is going from an internet of communication to an internet of transaction, right? distributed ledgers can allow us to create, at scale, uh, open ecosystems to produce something together on a world scale, both locally and globally and to adapt to each other, and to to be able to respect the planetary boundaries. So that's that's kind of uh, what I've been working on recently.
0: Yeah, I think those are all important things. The first thing I want to talk about is public shared ledgers. You know, you didn't quite say it, but I'll say it. I don't like Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is bad. It's a replication of bad patterns from the past. It was explicitly based on gold. And as you point out, it makes the rich richer. It's got lots of other problems. It's consuming electricity at a ridiculous level, et cetera. So while it was a very important proof of principle, and in fact, when I read the Bitcoin paper, when Satoshi put it out, I read it, I don't know, a few months after he published it, I said, I slapped myself in the head. So this is fucking brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? It's not that difficult actually, but it was a brilliant innovation. But the Bitcoin implementation, I would say much of the Ethereum work, though not all of it, is in the wrong direction, as you say, it's reinforcing kind of a libertarian, hyper individualist dog-eat-dog epic. On the other hand, blockchain can be used in much more positive ways too. And you know, I pointed before to the Holochain project. We've had Arthur Brock on the show a couple of times to talk about Holochain, which
1: is not a blockchain. I mean, you know, it's a distributed ledger without being based on the blockchain.
0: Oh, uh, I- yeah, it's a different style. It's in the same general family, but it's, you know, very, very different. And it's really designed for what I would call mostly good purposes. And then there's other kind of things which are more purely written on the blockchain, such as the Ocean Protocol, which is a very clever way for people to own and share their data, et cetera. That's also we're looking at. So yeah, this is an area that's a big innovation and I hope will eventually produce a major win for society and a toolkit that we can add to work with, but not all examples are good. We have to curate, you know, the tools that we use from this domain.
1: Yeah, but that's, that's, so that's why I, I talk in, in this uh, l- latest report about value-sensitive design, right? So if you're libertarian, you design a commodity currency. If you're commons-oriented, you think about a mutual credit currency. Um, if you're a libertarian, you think about smart contracts. If you're a commoner, you think about Ostrom contracts. And you can make a list of about a dozen things that, you know, how you would differently design a distributed ledger system if you are inspired by commons values versus libertarian values. So I think it's very important for people to understand that technology is not just neutral. It's, you know, it's an active terrain of struggle or construction, if you like that better. But the way your values are, are reflected in the way you design that, those systems, which then will be influencing everybody else who's using them. Um, and it's not a simple thing. You know, you look at the Internet, right? First is the uh, non-commissioned officers uh, of the U.S. Army that stress that it has to be peer-to-peer to survive nuclear war. It's taken over by scientists. Then it's taken over after '93 by the public with the web, with the web, and then the companies take over, you know, with with reintroducing client-server, and then the the surveillance state, you know, uh, wants to control everything. And so it's it's one technology, but it has different layers of design principles which are actually not that much in harmony with each other.
0: Yeah, because you send me the link to that, I want to make sure we put that on the episode page. Yeah, we'll do. That sounds absolutely central. You know, a design ethos is what can help technology liberate us, not enslave us, I would say. You know, again, we get deep into these issues, so we're kind of moving along here in time. I'm going to move from this topic, which we could talk about probably for two hours, and move to your chapter four. I personally found this extremely interesting. And that was p to p and the structure of world history and the various modes of production and organization of production and exchange, which have happened over time. I do want to make sure we have plenty of time for governance, which is something dear to my heart. But let's spend at least a little bit of time on your take on the P2P and the structure of world history.
1: Right. Well, so when I, when I started with the P2P Foundation um, in 2000, you know, two ish I started with discovering the relational grammar of Alan Page Fisk, and he's the one and I, I we talked about it about uh, forty minutes ago who distinguished between commoning, working together on a common on a common project that is a, a shared resource. The gift economy, he calls it equality matching, where you give something that creates an inequality and a desire to give back. The markets uh, and then what he calls auto- authority ranking, which is about redistribution. And what and then I discovered a second author uh, which is called Kojin Karatani, and he wrote an amazing book called uh, The Structure of World History. And he says that you know, these, these things that on page Fiske mentions are actually also active in history, but in different modes of combinations. And there's always a dominant mode. So, human history actually starts with the common. So, you have very small tribal groups that usually are nomadic. You know, when the hunters come back with, uh, let's say, a deer, it's not for the hunters, it's for the family. And there is a protocol for distribution of the pieces and actually usually the hunter he gets the lease because he has already the prestige of the hunt um, but so you know the idea that it's for everyone at the same time in a particular group that's really the very first uh, modality of, of human exchange uh, as we get more uh, complex bigger uh, you know bigger villages and tribal federations that's where uh, the gift economy comes in uh, equality matching because that's kind of social obligation that allows you to pacify, uh, you know, tribal warfare. Because as long as you can move along in small bands, you know, you don't have to go to war. You just move out. The world is big enough for everyone. But once you have uh, tribal federations, you know, the, the, the gift economy sk- skips in. Then comes the what he calls authority ranking. So once a tribe decides you know, to invade another tribe, well, you can't have a gift economy, right? Because it's a form of domination. So you have to justify your domination. And basically, it's going to say, you know, we protect you, we bring advantages in exchange for tribute and obedience. And so according to your rank in the hierarchy, you get more than another person in the lower rank of the hierarchy. Uh, and finally, market pricing. And so uh, another way to put it is that capitalism is a combination of capital, state and nation, right Capital drives everything, the accumulation of capital is the name of the game. The state creates a framework in which this can happen and is also the place for keeping a balance uh, you know at the meta level of society. So the state has a double role, if you like, and the nation is, is the community and they merge at the same time, and it's one system, capital, state, nation. And uh, what I'm saying is that if you look at the micro foundations of open source and peer production, you might actually deduce a new uh, combination, which is values produced not in the market alone, but through all the contributions in civil society. So the value regime changes and becomes common centric, The commoners uh, need to make a livelihood and create livelihood organizations through a generative economy, which includes, uh, you know, uh, market uh, dynamics. And then you have these for benefit associations like the Linux Foundation and and, uh, Drupal Association, which, you know, manage the infrastructure of cooperation and like a common good institution like the state. So it's kind of transformation of the state. So my political program, if you like, uh, Jim, is to transform Civil society, the market, and the nation—all at the same time—a
0: modest little project.
1: Very modest, and so my first book was actually called, you know, Changing the World. But of course, I'm not saying I'm going to change the world. I'm going—I'm saying that you know all peers should be changing uh, the world. And so I, I would like to add something to that. So I've been very interested lately in what are called wave pulse theories, and the idea is that societies move from one polarity to another uh, extractive periods of competition usually tend to an overuse and a collapse and that creates a pulse towards going to the other uh, polarity which is a period of regeneration and healing of society and so you look at society and you see this con- continuous polarity changing and Remarkably, the commons is the healing agent in regenerative periods. Um, there's a fantastic book by Mark Whitaker, which is called Ecological Revolutions and the Actual Religions. And he basically shows that in the past, and he looks at China 12th century, Japan 15th century, and uh, Europe in the f- uh, 8th century. And he sees the same thing. So the system is in crisis, like the fall of the Roman Empire. And what happens? Mutualization at a big scale to heal the society. And so this was, of course, going on in regionally limited periods within regional planetary boundaries. But now we have arrived at global planetary boundaries. And that tells me that we have to achieve this kind of next transformation. And it, it, we have to escape the pendulum. We have to escape the pulse because we now have nowhere else to go than keep the planet in a steady state, right? So that's kind of what, you know, a lot of ecological uh, thinkers would tell you is that we need some kind of degrowth period where our amount of usage of matter energy has to go down to a certain degree. Part of what we save can go to solving the huge global problems that we have with, you know, people are homeless and still hungry in many places. Uh, but the aim is to arrive at a steady state system where humanity knows what to use uh, of its bio, you know, capacity. And so you could say that we have to move from a capital-labor compact, which was the basis of the welfare state, to a compact between humanity and nature, to a recognition of our place in the web of life, and towards interspecies communi- you know collaboration in maintaining. Uh, you know, the health of our planet. So that's kind of the challenge. And I believe that peer-to-peer dynamics and the commons are a crucial part of that transformation.
0: Very good. Let me make a couple of comments. One, it strikes me that, as you said, we have to avoid it this time without the pulse, right? Because we have too far to fall. We've built a very high stack of infrastructure and systems. And should we fall, we're going to fall a very long way. And we have used the power of this game A hierarchy, as we would call it, to allow population to grow to 8 billion. And if the hierarchy collapses or if the underlying structures collapse too rapidly, many of those 8 billion people will die, I'm afraid. Second, I think this is very important, is when people talk about degrowth, I think that that can be perceived as overly simplistic. Now, you did caveat it, and this is absolutely critical, that we have to degrow our imposition on the regenerative powers of mother nature. And so, you know, we have to stop fossil fuel use by 2050, probably. We have to get better at recycling metals and things. But, there's still lots of room to grow, quote unquote, in ways that aren't material. I call that growth into the microcosm rather than growth into the macrocosm. You know, for instance, better poetry or a new song is growth in some sense, right? In fact, my friend Tyson Yunkaporta, who we've had on the show three times, he's of an Australian indigenous people background. He says that in their culture, they make a big distinction between increase and growth, so for instance, if the crops you grow get better on the same land without any material inputs, but you just take good care of the land that's increase while if you open up new land and destroy the native habitat, that's growth, and increase is better than growth and so I would you know ask people to have some nuance about this that degrowthing doesn't mean things can't get better but they require a different concept.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the concepts that we use is, uh, you know, sustainable well-being, which is, uh, you know, how can we actually increase the well-being of people within the framework of sustainability of planetary boundaries? And, you know, I I fully agree with you. I mean, that's, you know, I will not use degrowth in my public communications because, you know, when people are struggling to survive, you're not going to tell them that they have to be even poorer. That's that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, stopping waste. Uh, it's and it's about directing life towards the growth of the things that make us really happy. So I just see degrowth of the at the material usage as a kind of objective necessity. But it's absolutely not a way to communicate politically uh, about these these issues. Um, and that's why I think commoning is also important because you know when you do meaningful work in a group that's a huge boost to your to your personal happiness right it's it's a It's an expression of your being and so there's a lot of things we can do that go in that direction that make people a lot happier than you know the mere accumulation of material stuff that you actually don't use uh, that much.
0: Yep, absolutely, and again, we we both know that an awful lot of capital could be shared, and you know things like tool libraries or transportation as a service run the right way. Uh, oh, by the way, I want to revisit that, even though we talked about it in the last show. You know, we talked about you know a better Uber. There actually are a few examples, like in the city of Austin, Texas. About fifty percent of the market for rideshare is by a driver-owned co-op, which is kind of interesting, but. To your other point, it would be really nice if somebody documented how they did it and you know what their legal structures were, how they dealt with regulation, et cetera, and make that available as a package for other people around the world to be able to take those seeds and plant them elsewhere.
1: Yeah, that's what I call a protocol cooperative, you know, because the protocols are publicly available and so people can take them and adapt them to, you know, other, other uh, contexts.
0: Interesting, yep. All right, let me introduce another concept here, which is relatively new, I think quite new, comes from one of my collaborators, a guy named Jordan Hall, and he has five or six YouTube videos on the concept that he calls CIVIUM, C-I-V-I-U-M. So YouTube, CIVIUM, Jordan Hall will bring it up, and it's informed by the work of Jeffrey West and Luis Betancourt, who are both affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute, And their work showed in a very convincing fashion that cities are quite unlike biology. Biology is sublinear. When an elephant, you compare an elephant to a mouse, an elephant might be 10,000 times heavier, but it does not use 10,000 times as much energy or water. It goes down at a sublinear scaling at the three-fourths power, as it turned out. And so maybe an elephant uses 200 times the energy of a mouse, even though it's 10,000 times bigger. But the opposite is true for cities. As cities get bigger, they are super scalar in a whole lot of dimensions, some positive and some negative. For instance, we know patents are generated at a higher rate per capita in larger cities. Economic wages are higher per in larger cities per capita, but also crime is higher and disease is higher, et cetera. And so the superlinearity has some very interesting consequences, particularly, and it's one of the reasons why we're developing these mega cities all around the world with populations of 20 million or more, and particularly in the third world, many of them are fairly horrible places in terms of quality of life and impact on the local environment, at least. And of course, in the West, The super cities become dominant in the economy in their region and are sucking resources in from all over, causing people around the world to degrade the environment and come up against the limits, and I would say at this point, beyond the limits of growth. And further, this is, I think, the new addition that Jordan adds to this analysis is that cities make people crazy. You know, you look at the rate of which people go to psychotherapists, you know, you look at and you just think about the kind of life you have to live in a big city, you know, where you're looking down at your feet in the subway, not talking to your neighbor. You don't even know who your neighbor is in the apartment building you deal with. Everything has been reduced to the transactions of the market or the government. There is no face-to-face community. Most people who move to the cities don't bring their whole extended family with them. So they're social isolates. And so Jordan has proposed, taking some of the things you've talked about, the ability of the nets, that we start to recreate society from the bottom up in small groups, a few hundred people in the mostly rural areas that create extraordinarily high quality of life to a degree that's reasonable that they be self-contained with respect to things like power and water, depending on where they're located, they may be able to be self-sufficient with respect to food too, but they also should be open to the wider society to trade. For things that they can't do, for instance, they're not going to make their own computer chips anytime soon or airplanes or other things, but, and this is the key, so they can contribute to the global, shall we say, increase, they need to be coupled to the wider world and to each other so that they can have the good parts of superlinearity of large groups of humans interacting and yet still provide a very humane and low impact quality of life. And I find this synthesis completely interesting and engaging and have been starting to dig into it in some detail. I'd love to get your thoughts on the idea that we can capture the good that comes from large groups of humans interacting and yet build humane and low-impact ways of living at the same time.
1: Well, it, it, it sounds a bit like, you know, our, our idea of cosmolocal uh, organization, right? Which, uh, so I, I'm, I look, I mean, I have opened the tabs. I've never actually taken the time yet to look at, uh, you know, the whole series. But uh, it sounds like uh, something that is totally interesting. I have some friends uh, in France who have calculated that if we want 100% organic food, we need 12% of the people back in the countryside. So what we also have to know is that you know Italy, Spain, uh, Portugal, France have you know, hundreds and hundreds of empty villages. You know, so the villages are actually there. Nobody wants to live there anymore. But you know, if we can create a, a non-isolated, a non-isolated cultural life, I think we could have this type of you know global global villages that are both local, but you know also intensely connected with intellectual and cultural life of the world. And I I think basically with internet, there is no reason anymore to make that huge distinction between the countryside and the city. And I have a friend from the Global Villages Project, it's called GIVE, G-I-V-E, which is doing a virtual university of the villages. Um, Because, you know, if you're in a village, it's hard to get a good professor to come by and give a lecture so they mutualize and they invite, you know, the best professors in Austria to teach uh, people in the villages. I, I think those kinds of things go in the same direction of what Jordan is uh, trying to propose. Uh, so I'm definitely interested in learning more about it.
0: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I would point people to it as something that I would suggest is highly congruent with your ideas and then combines them with the West Betancourt findings about superlinearity of cities to produce what is a Pretty compelling way to think about ways forward. Well, we're getting late here in time again. Damn it. We have so much interesting things to talk about and so little time. Let's move on to the payoff. Chapter five, a commons transition strategy. What do we need to do? Yes,
1: I can't exactly recall what I I wrote in that uh, fifth chapter, and I must say I've been a bit, you know, in a more doubtful mode because uh, I think what we see happening is that the social collapse is, you know, speeding up much faster than the ecological collapse, and so you know the political situation is becoming hugely complicated. But so basically, what I'm advocating is so new model, and I focus around the idea of partner state. And public commons cooperation protocols, right? So moving away from this idea of a top-down uh, state to an idea of a partnering uh, state, and that can, you know, happen at all levels, including global governance institutions. But uh, let me give you an example. I, I don't know if we did that last time, but you know, you have the Bologna regulation for the care and regeneration of the urban commons. It creates a lab it allows all citizens in the city to say i want to care for this as a commons so abandoned buildings you know uh, uh, parks that are not kept well uh, even cleaning the the river sides I mean, there's many many things that can be done and so the uh, there's a process of negotiation and validation then a commons accord is signed And the city then becomes the coordinator of the support. And they have this system called the Quintuple Helix system, which is the city, the Chamber of Commerce, the uh, research organizations, and the official NGOs. And all these four combine together to help number five, which are the common-centric social innovators. And I think this is a great model and it has been copied by 250 other Italian cities, and it has mobilized 1 million Italians in working for the commons at their local uh, urban scale. So I think this is a you know something that actually needs to be done everywhere, because if you recall what the maker movement was doing with COVID, you know they were very very fast at producing those things, but then the hospitals were afraid to accept their their material because of all kinds of legal. And liability issues that they you know they didn't want to cross those lines and that is a huge waste of uh, you know potential in, in in value so i think this is very important that we need to you know step away from the the binary state or market and move at least to a triarchy where you know what's the best combination of economic activities from the market orchestrated planning and regulation from the partner state, and you know, and support mechanisms, and then of course the autonomous activity of the commoners. Um, so that that for me is uh, very important that we start moving in that simultaneous transformation uh, of civil society, the market, and the state function uh, using those concepts of uh, public
0: commons cooperation protocols.
1: And um, I don't know if I wrote anything else there.
0: Yeah, I had some other things, but I think you hit the, the big picture. You know, things I wonder about is trying to do all three at once. Is that feasible? I would say our Game B movement at the present time is focused on just doing proofs of principle at the local scale and including some of Jordan civium ideas on how the local communities would have protocols for interacting with themselves and the wider world in a way to have you know, a superscalar ability to have increase, if not growth, and leave the state reforms till later. Though, as you point out, the current meta crisis may not let us do that. I guess our perspective is that the politics is so broken, particularly in the United States, but increasingly across the West, that it may not be worth participating in partisan politics at this time.
1: Yes, I, I, I fully agree. It's difficult, but I, I, I think we still need to, you know, to to have an integrated, holistic approach. And you know, don't forget, not everybody has to do everything, right? So. so you know, I I fully agree that you know if you're engaged in doing a local project, you know your energy is going to making that work. Uh, but I think at some point you do have to, you know, create a relationship with the public authority. And you know, at the local level, it might not be as bad as at the national level, right? All these games that national level politicians can play because they can put up one group against another. Uh, when you're at the local level. You know, if there's a riot, you're, you're you're there's nowhere else to go, right? So there's, I think, a strong motive for local politicians to behave uh, substantially differently than at a national scale.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we do say that.
1: Yeah, and I I'm advocating the creation of assemblies of the Commons and Chamber of the Commons, and uh, Commons Transition Coalition. So the first one, Assembly is where all the people who are engaged in creating and protecting commons can, you know, find each other uh, and, you know, arrive at a consensus of what needs to be happening in terms of regulation. And, you know, and and then we have a chamber of commons, which is all the the livelihood organizations. Uh, You know, how can we make healthy businesses around the commons? Uh, and then the co- the Commons Transition Coalition is the people who have a more of a political consciousness and, and wants to work directly on those regulations. Um, I frankly think we do need uh, to do everything at the same time. And i give you an example. For example, the Economy for the Common Good is a proposal um, to create a common good accounting system with 17 clusters of impact, which already exists they've been doing this for 10 years. And when you have an investment policy, you can start saying, well, we are only going to invest and support those uh, industries that have a positive impact, right? So you lower your taxes and higher subsidies for generative businesses, and you lower it for degrading practices. And so you keep the companies, you keep the CEOs, but you change the entire incentive system around them, right? So we, we need to find those things which can accelerate the change. So my view of companies is, is a bit you know, like can't live with them and can't live without them. So they have often a predatory DNA, but we're not going to get rid of them within 10 years, which is what we need to do uh, for you know, rapid transition. So we need to find ways to work with them and guide them and push them with a framework that still allows them maximum amount of freedom and autonomy, but kind of guided by those regenerative principles.
0: Now, this work on the chamber and the assemblies, is that actually happening now? Because I've sensed a strong interest in all the various groups that are working that are more or less pointed in the same direction, though, with different emphasis and different theory, starting to communicate more and sharing practices. It's something I've been calling the Big Change Coalition. And I'd love to see something like that happen.
1: It is happening at, the, at the, you know, not big enough scale. But, for example, in France, we have about at least 15 now. You know, they're called Fabric of the Commons or, you know, they have different names, but they're essentially a place where commoners get together. Uh, There's also more and more food transition councils, energy transition councils, like, you know, I come originally from Brussels and there's a regional transition coalition. There is even in France already a website, you know, politics of the commons, which has prepared solutions that can be given to politicians during electoral periods when they're looking at, you know, their planning and their agenda. So what to do with habitat, what to do with transport. So those things exist already. Like, you know, if you want to do commoning of housing, you need a community land trust approach, you need cooperative housing, and you need co-housing, right? Those are three different models that cover the ground, the houses, and the the functioning of the houses uh, internally. So these things exist, but they need to be interconnected. So we suffer fragmentation, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and I would say I would go even a step further and say that while the commoners and commoning is a great approach and has a lot of richness to it, there are other approaches that are, I think, pointed in the same direction. You know, for instance, the regenerative ecology movement. It's similar, but not the same. And another one that I've become quite interested in lately is political metamodernism, the Hansi Freinacht stuff. And our own game B, I think, fits in that category. And I know a half a dozen, maybe a dozen more, that are each taking a somewhat different approach. But we can think of it as having a coherent pluralism. There's a small group of things we agree upon, and there's a broader group of things we agree to disagree about. And I think an association at that level could be really useful at this time.
1: Yeah, it's about meshing. It's about meshing uh, perspectives. You know, each perspective brings something to the table. That others didn't see, but it also because of its filter doesn't see other things, right? And so the more perspective you can mesh together, the more you shine light uh, on on the on the problems and and the objects. Um, and so I wouldn't put ourselves in a situation where we say, you know, all in the commons uh, is the answer, or only meta modernism is the answer, but kind of you know, interconnect, interweave uh, those different approaches and then, like, discuss solutions and, and, and enrich the solutions be- through this intermeshing of an, an encounter. I think that, that would be, a, you know, a big way forward.
0: Oh, that's, I'm glad for you to hear that because I've been talking to a number of people about this, and they all say they're ready to do it. And I may call some people together to try to get this rolling sometime early next year. And You will certainly be high on my list of people.
1: I uh, will be happy to participate.
0: Ah, very good. Well, I think we're getting close to the end of our time here. Any final thoughts on the way forward, and particularly in the context of the suddenly pretty hot meta crisis we seem to be finding ourselves in?
1: Yeah, that, that's a it's a real problem because uh, I think we discussed it uh, in private. Uh, you know, before we opened the recording, um, or maybe we discussed in the beginning. I can't remember. Sorry, but. The way social media are weaponizing difference is extraordinarily disruptive. Um, You know, I'm a curator, I'm a pluralistic curator, I've done that all my life, and I've never been under so much pressure to limit my sources. And on both sides, there is extraordinary exaggeration where, uh, you know, when I hear somebody on the right saying Bernie Sanders is radical leftist, you know, I'm laughing because... You know, it's Scandinavia, which is, like, totally normal here in Europe. There's nothing radical about it. Uh, you know, it's already uh, 100 years old, right? And the same way on the left, you know, like, you know, even the slight descent is now called outright, and and most people don't even know what it means. So this kind of inflation of demonization uh, is a huge, huge problem. So I, I, I'm very much for projects like, you know, Protopia Lab, or new discourses or, or others that, uh, the Stoa, you know, these, these places where people can learn to talk to each other again, because that's, that's very, very important. If we, you know, if you have multiple perspectives and, you know, as a curator, I do this every day, I look something up and I look first at the factual basis, you know, is this likely to be true or not? And, and I can double check and triple check certain things. But I also try to understand the narrative frame, right? So, how do these people come to these conclusions? And, you know, it's almost never out of evil, it's almost always out of fear. And so, what I'm trying to say here is that we have to be, you know, really learn to talk to each other and to accept, you know, divergent perspectives and to find ways to transcend those uh, those differences to a certain degree what you can do in the commons is you know put some difference under the brackets right you say we are here to do free software you are libertarian i'm a social democrat well that's not a problem in this context because we both want to have good free software you see what i mean so creating constructive projects uh, that allow us to put certain things under brackets. I mean even people who believe in you know QAnon can be very nice and friendly people and you know I wouldn't agree with them but as human beings I can have a conversation, a respectful conversation about, you know, don't we need a good neighborhood? Don't we need to improve the schools? Don't you know what I mean? So that's kind of I think what needs to happen.
0: Yeah, I call that concept alignment beyond agreement, that we can be in alignment with people on some big picture things. You know, we may need to make human life more humane, right? Very few people, I think, would disagree with that, Though we may disagree about the techniques to get there. And let's talk about our disagreements. And as a librarian, you know that one of the ways to help. Make sense of disagreements is try to get to the facts first, and that's what's really breaking down in our society is that people have their own facts, which is extremely dangerous when people think that they have facts that are not compatible there's only one reality people one set of facts is true, and both sides need to back off of their tribalism
1: Unfortunately, some people question that very you know very basic fact
0: <laughs> yeah, those are goddamn postmodernism which at least the flattened form I got no use for. There are some interesting things in postmodernism, but that one that all points of view are equal is just ridiculous, right? Or which doctor is not the same as Johns Hopkins Medical School, sorry. Astronomy is not the same as astrology.
1: Well, we need some, some uh, you know, common methodologies to educate differences, right? So that's, that's, that has to be there. Otherwise, we will never make any progress
0: on these issues. Well, I think at that point we're going to wrap up here, Michelle. This has been again another remarkable conversation, which I think will help the world actually. And you know, I think we paint at least a reasonably hopeful road forward.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Jim. I enjoyed uh, both our conversations, and thank you so much for you know bringing all this material uh, to the people.
0: Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.